It's always hard to please everyone, but who would have predicted that the advent and current generation of electronic health records, so widely in use in healthcare today, would have given rise to so much frustration among providers? This is not how the story was supposed to unfold. Instead of applauding digital efficiencies and improving care, we're hearing repeatedly that the technology and software designs on the whole don't match well with actual clinical processes and workflows. They aren't used and they don't match with workflows. They aren't user friendly. They open up too many opportunities for mistakes. They're jeopardizing patient safety. They gobble up doctors and nurses time and on and on. So how did we get here? What are the prospects for fixing numerous problems? And where should we look for the next generation of designs and innovations? We're going to try and hit on all these issues on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live biweekly. And after that, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. In putting together today's program about electronic health records, we very much wanted to avoid getting stuck in the past or even the present, but we felt we needed to better understand each in order to see where things could be headed. We think we've got the right people in the room to help us do this, and that includes you, our listeners, so thanks for joining. And we're going to get right to introductions in just a moment, but first let's hear from John Gothier. He's going to remind you all how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right, Madge. Thank you. Uh, on the right side of of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the Send to Bar when Madge opens up the questions, the floor to questions a little later. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive or at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to take a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks a lot, John. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can include others in the conversation that follow that handle. And a reminder, if you are only tuned into WIHI by phone and you're not logged in, you're welcome to email info at IHI.org to get hold of all the materials we'll be sharing on the show. All right, now to our panel. Uh, on the phone, John Halamka is the International Healthcare Innovation Professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's Chief Information Officer at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center based in Boston, and he's also a practicing emergency physician. Welcome, John. 
Well, very happy to be here. Fantastic. Also on the phone, we have IHI's Executive Director, Jill Duncan. She provides strategic development and programming leadership for IHI's quality, cost, and value focus area, and also for IHI's Leadership Alliance. We're so glad you're with us, Jill. Welcome. Thanks, Madge. It's a pleasure. And here in the studio with me is Lawrence Stuntz. He's director of the Massachusetts eHealth Institute, and that's the Commonwealth's entity for healthcare innovation, technology, and competitiveness. And you'll hear more about all of that in just a moment. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you very much. It's great to be here in studio. All right. We're going to get right underway. Uh, thanks for chiming in on the chat about the weather. And a reminder, uh, follow those nifty instructions that John mentioned if you're having any audio hiccups at all. And uh, John is also, John Gothier here, help, um, always uh, willing to help you out. So, Jill, we're going to start right off with you. A number of individuals and groups have definitely been articulating the problems with electronic health records right now and possible solutions. One such group is IHI's own Leadership Alliance. I want you to tell us about that alliance and why its members wanted to get into such a sticky issue as EHRs. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Madge. Thank you. Um, So just a little bit of context about who the Leadership Alliance is might be helpful just in understanding um, why they are thinking about EHRs and what their voice uh, and angle might be. But the Leadership Alliance is a group of executive leaders from over 40 healthcare organizations. And as you can see here, from if you're looking at, at the screen, they're really committed to working together as well as in partnership with their patients, their workforce, and their communities to deliver on the full promise of the triple aim. This notion of care better than we've ever seen, health better than we've ever known, costs we can all afford for every person every time is really the underpinning and the vision of this group of leaders. This, or, this group of executive leaders is starting their third year of collaboration together. But in the first year, just to, to look back, they really collaborated around this notion of new rules for accelerating healthcare redesign. It was framed a bit around the evolution of the IOM 10 simple rules, but it got at things and, and, and this group of leaders really felt that looking forward to leading under increasing uncertainty, things like changing the balance of power, standardizing what makes sense, uh, customizing to the individual, creating joy in work, making it easy, assuming abundance, all these, all these ideas were really at the underpinning of how they as leaders wanted to think about the future of healthcare. So as we worked with them, we said, well, what is what does the healthcare look like? And if we're going to hold ourselves accountable to these new rules of leading in healthcare, what gets in your way? Uh, how, how do leaders need to act and move? And, and one of the first issues that they surfaced when we asked the question, what gets in your way, was they were quick to say, why can't our EHRs be more like our smartphones? Uh, I think it's probably of, of no surprise given all that we've seen in the literature. There's, I don't think we can go a week, maybe even a day, either in social media or in, in uh, journal publications with clinicians, providers, uh, executives, frontline leaders writing, talking about the challenges that they're having, caring for patients, um, uh, caring for their workforce in the EHR environment that they're currently using. So this group convened. Um, they over about a six-month period, they set out with a couple goals. They wanted to, they wanted to really surface what was working well, Within their organizations, they wanted to highlight innovations, bright spots, enhancements that they were using that they really felt were 
delivering on the full promise of what EHR should be doing for their systems. But they also wanted to develop a call to action. And admittedly, this call to action was a bit of a collective voice to add to the chorus of building uh, voices around what could be, or where the potential really was to leverage EHRs to improve healthcare. And then the third thing that they set out to do was to convene a multi-stakeholder meeting. They wanted to bring people together in Washington, D.C., from the vendor community, from the public and private sector, to really start to think about creating solutions together. So that's how, that's how this group has been thinking about EHRs. It's the voice that they've started to create. They've, they've really started to frame, again, using those, two, those ten rules of radical redesign. The call to action leveraged many of those rules. Um, they, uh, again, like, like voices that they're hearing, they've started to really push for more integrated systems, really thinking about pushing on the traditional business models of the vendors and how uh, EHRs really uh, the opportunities to shift more in service of patients and the and the users, and then really raising questions around regulations and and the rules that have governed historically um, the EHR world. Uh, Dr. Halamka was the facilitator of this meeting. It was an incredible group of providers that came together and 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 was really able to start the conversation that as we move for meaningful use and we think about the future under macra and and new ways of thinking about health information technology, what's possible? And could healthcare delivery systems in partnership with, the, with these groups of vendors and public, public and private sectors perhaps think about new ways to work differently and collaboratively to help design that space? And so that was how this group of leaders has been thinking and talking and really trying to act in service of trying to advance the future of, of EHRs. And, and again, we've had leaders like Dr. Halamka that have, have really put, continued to push and help frame their voice as well. Okay. Thanks a lot, um, Jill. And just a reminder, we've put the link up for this really nifty document, Why Can't Electronic Health Records Be More Like Smartphones? And uh, it works through uh, the rules that um, kind of radical de redesign rules that Jill was just talking about. So uh, get yourself a, a, a copy of that um, at the link. And Jill, uh, towards the end of the show, will give us some sense of maybe where this issue goes from here with le leadership. Alliance and at, at IHI. What I want to do now, though, is turn to that Dr. Halamka. Um, I'm going to call him John, and you are no stranger to the big picture of what's been going on, and uh, really want to hear what your thoughts are about how we got into this situation. I'm wondering whether there was some big misunderstanding about the digital transformation in healthcare, especially here in the U.S., and what it was going to achieve. So uh, how did we get here, John, and welcome again. Well, thanks so much. And so imagine, Jill, IHI, very, very notable for quoting the statement, you've achieved exactly the results you've designed. And so this idea of having a digitized healthcare system, which includes too many clicks and has doctors spending more time staring at keyboards than patients, is exactly what we designed. Now, why? So think back to the 1990s. You know, 1990s, a lot of frustration with doctors using paper, inability to share data, inability to get good decision support, inability to do population health. So we, as a country, decided we would move forward with something called the National Coordinator. And probably several of you have worked with our National Coordinators. And Dr. David Brailer, our first National Coordinator, under the Bush administration, said, we better move the entire industry from paper to digital. We better start sharing data. We better engage patients and families, and we better do something about public health and population health. 
And so we marched to this next five years of effort in the Bush administration, early Obama administration, starting to work through data standards and how to create electronic records that, in effect, digitized paper, recapitulated the processes we had in our hospitals and doctors' offices, but in digital form. And then, of course, we had the High Tech Act, and we had some $31 billion allocated to doctors and hospitals to incentivize us to move to digital. So have we achieved those four basic goals that Dr. Brailler outlined? Absolutely. Ninety-six percent of our doctors are now slaves to their computers, spending time with their laptops, keyboards, and mice instead of their patients and their families. It's what we designed. We now have 140 data elements per encounter captured by clinicians. So remember, Doc, you have 12 minutes to see the patient, make eye contact, be empathetic, enter 141 data elements, and never commit malpractice. It's impossible, (laughs) but it's what we designed. So the good news, as you start looking at where we are today and where we're going into the future, although you can see this report card that's up on the screen now, I give us a C-plus for the fact that clinicians are burned out that we are spending much more time with the capture of data than the thinking about what to do with the data, turning it into knowledge and communicating it back to patients and families, there is the realization, as you've heard from Jill, that those of us who've been through the digital transformation know we can do better. We will rethink the way that the regulations of the next couple of years roll out to be a bit less prescriptive. Doc, you must enter this data element in this fashion to being more outcomes-based to pay for quality, to pay for what you achieve. Because if we start reimbursing doctors and hospitals for patient wellness, as opposed to encounters and data capture, we're much more likely to achieve the digital results we want in the future. In fact, we're also much more likely to share data more openly. So today I can tell you that if you look at the Massachusetts Commonwealth ecosystem, do we have any technical barriers to sharing data? Really very few. What we have is a lack of alignment of incentives and sometimes a bit of organizational inertia. But if you say you will be paid for care coordination, you will be paid for quality and outcomes, suddenly that inertia starts to disappear. So if you go to that next slide, uh, if you look at some ways we can do better, and often when I speak I tell the story of how my family uses their smartphones and interacts with their clinicians using secure texting and has transparency into their results and really is part of the workflow, people say, well, of course, that's the way every healthcare experience should work. My wife, recently diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, went through symptoms, testing, diagnosis, and treatment over the course of a two-day period, largely interacting with clinicians electronically. She didn't have to spend an hour driving on the pike or pay $40 for parking. She's happy, the quality was high, and the cost to society of her diagnosis and treatment was low. My mother has had issues with having wrong medicines prescribed for her and drug-drug interactions. We are now getting to a point in 2016, where data is starting, just starting to flow better across state networks and national networks like SureScripts, which we'll just announced yesterday will be offering a variety of services for free for the next two years, and trade organizations like Commonwealth and vendors like Epic to try to prevent some of the drug-drug and uh, drug-allergy interaction issues that we've seen in the past. 
we're really starting to do better at sharing data with patients and families and making apps available where they can get some transparency. For example, their notes. Who said what about you and what is your care plan? We're starting to leverage the data we're gathering in institutions to help those who are sick today based on data gathered of those who were sick yesterday. My wife benefited from an analytic look at those in the past who had had a kind of breast cancer. And we're starting to move to more agile technical platforms using the cloud and using mobile devices. So we may be at a B minus overall, but you have to say in 2016, there are a set of innovations that are happening. Now I'll just conclude, Jill and Madge, before we turn it over to Lawrence, by saying that in 2018 we'll see some new regulations, this MA, the, the MACRA and MIPS regulation, which gives us a new set of guidance. It wasn't, it's not meaningful use as it was in the past, just do more electronic data capture for the sake of electronic data capture. It's really focused on quality, safety, and efficiency. You'll see those uh, regulations finalized on November 1st of this year, so just uh, a month and a week away, you'll see what the next couple of years will start to look like. We'll go away from meaningful use. We'll go away from the traditional certification approaches, giving doctors and hospitals more flexibility. We'll focus on the patient, quality, safety, and efficiency, and we hope we ultimately return the joy of practice to medicine, although that may be overly optimistic turn it back to you. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. Do you think John is overly optimistic? Feel free to weigh in uh, on, on on the chat. I appreciate uh, all that, John, and we'll flash up John Gothier, uh, John Halamka's final slide. Uh, it's a reminder that you can communicate with him and you might want to check out uh, John's great blog, Geek Doctor, which is uh, really keeps many of us quite informed about these big issues here. All right. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go to Lawrence now. Lawrence Stein. And uh, sometimes it is hard, although John just did it, but it, sometimes it is hard to wade through all the frustration. But you, too, are engaged in something that seems to suggest there's light at the end of the tunnel. So tell us what's, uh, what you've gotten yourself involved in. Thanks. Thanks, Madge, and thanks, uh, John and Jill, for kicking off the program. So, you know, as John was describing, there's been a long history of uh, getting exactly what we've designed and paid for, and Meaningful Use really has advanced adoption of electronic health records tremendously over the past uh, six, six or seven years as it's been in place. Uh, here in Massachusetts today, there's 100% of acute care hospitals are using electronic health records. As John mentioned, over 95% of our physicians are using it. Uh, we called up all the skilled nursing facilities this summer, and over 75% of them are using electronic health records. So while the systems themselves may not be uh, optimal or may need some change what what we've created is an infrastructure that's a jumping off point so we have digital data for all of uh, all of us all of the residents and that's really exciting because what it allows us to do is basically create a platform for real innovation here in Massachusetts so and uh, not just in Massachusetts although we're fairly far along, I think, as compared to the rest of the country, but this is happening all over the country. So this isn't something that uh, will be just uh, just here. This is 
happening all over the all over the country. So, Mihai, in our role as a uh, as a state agency encouraging innovation and encouraging the digital health initiative here in the in the Commonwealth, and working with uh, Governor Baker and with uh, the legislature, we're really focused on okay, how can we catalyze this uh, infrastructure, this ecosystem of data that are held by the uh, healthcare providers, as John mentioned, and you know all the hospitals, all the physicians, and how can we bring that together with the tech community who are working on uh, just figuring out better ways to leverage that information and to improve care and over, uh, overall quality of care. And there's a couple of things that I'll just highlight, and then uh, maybe we can dig into it if people have questions. So uh, one thing is the digital health marketplace that we're talking about. And uh, the marketplace really is a is an organizing framework that we're working on to identify, you know, and move from the uh, discovery of ideas, so we're bringing together teams and challenges and bringing them together with uh, the problems that our healthcare system has. So there are hackathons. MIT Hacking Medicine here, there are uh, Brigham and Women's, Beth Israel, Children's, all have ways of uh, sort of identifying key problems that organizations have and key resources like uh, last week at, uh, at a launch event that we did, uh, John's organization, Beth Israel, talked about all of the infrastructure that they've got in place. Now that they've invested in electronic health records, they have a capacity to test out innovations in mobile, in communicating with providers, in big data analytics to understand the real population health that is uh, that, you know, the million patients at Beth Israel have and entrepreneurs and innovators have an opportunity to work with these institutions to really get interesting insights. I think it's going to be really important over the next uh, few years as uh, to give our institutions and our data holders a the headroom to uh, to be able to spend some time on innovation to really be able to understand the data that they're capturing and to spend some time and let uh, you know one of the for instance I'll, I'll use an example from the, uh, the Pulse at Mass Challenge launch event that we did last uh, week AARP is, uh, many of folks know, they've almost started to send me uh, <laughs> flyers, which is a little sad. Um, the, uh, you know, they've got 38 million, uh, you know, members as part of their organization. They are taking a hard look at uh, digital health innovation. They recognize that there is, uh, because we've captured all this data and because our entire population is getting older, uh, they are really interested in caregiving. And so what they're, what they've asked for and what they've, you know, they're, uh, they've challenged innovators to bring to the table is a, uh, is interesting and innovative applications that support caregivers, that help caregivers uh, understand where their patients are, not where their patients, but where their uh, loved ones are in their health. So this is going to require integration with the electronic health data that's been captured through these electronic health records. It's uh, going to help those caregivers develop communities of, you know, for support networks and to bring folks uh, together. So that's just one of the 10 challenges that uh, were listed by uh, you know, Pulse and the, the reverse pitches that were uh, generated. Um, I just want to say, as a, a last piece, um, 
you know, we now are uh, also transforming our payment system. So here in Massachusetts, uh, the Medicaid system, which uh, ultimately ensures about a quarter of the population, is in the final uh, final steps of working with federal government to really revamp our payment system for Medicaid. So this is going to bring value-based payment to uh, to the Medicaid population, which is uh, the poorest among us, and it's really going to incent providers for sharing of information, coordination of information, and coordinating the care of uh, our most vulnerable populations. So uh, there, it's going to be a tremendous driver of innovation, and it couldn't happen without the platform of digital health, rec- you know, electronic health records, the digital uh, data that has been captured, and the health information exchange that has been put in place. So I'm really hopeful. Maybe it's you know darkest before the dawn, so to speak. Um, but I think we really have created an infrastructure that was exactly what we paid for, exactly what we designed. Uh, but it gives us uh, we're you know eons ahead of where we were seven years ago when meaningful use started. Thank you very much, Lawrence. I really appreciate it. And I want to invite our listeners uh, to start thinking of your comments and questions for Q&A, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes. And also a reminder, all the slides that uh, we've shown you today, you can uh, get them uh, right off of the link in the chat, and they'll also be up on our website on the archive page uh, at the conclusion of the show later today or tomorrow morning. John Halamka, I want to come back to you. And uh, maybe it's just me, but I'm listening uh, to you and Lawrence, and I'm thinking, okay, excited, and, you know, sort of big uh, promises in a way from an innovation standpoint, maybe in the aggregate. And what do you say right now to the clinician, the provider that is tearing his or her hair out? <laughs> I couldn't even say that. His or her hair out over, you know, the way the workflow is, uh, that the uh, particular system that they're using um, just continues to cause a lot of headaches. Um, You talked about the number of clicks. Um, I'm just curious. I want to make sure we don't skip over sort of what what are any promising signs that somehow designs are going to better understand what clinicians um, actually need and how they go about the day, you know, in a primary care practice, say. Where, where are those well, bright them. spots? Yeah. Sure. So I tell them three things. So the first is, I feel your pain and you are completely correct. So yesterday I was at an analytics company that actually took a leading EHR's click data from an audit trail and graphed it over a 24-hour period, and it looks something like this. Dr. Famous gets up at 7 in the morning and logs into the computer. Dr. Famous sees a patient every 12 minutes between 7 in the morning and 5 at night and then logs out of the computer only because logging onto your computer while driving is bad. (laughs) Dr. Famous has dinner with family, puts the kids to bed, and at 7 o'clock logs into the computer again and continues seeing patients electronically documenting all the visits of the day, the quality metrics, and the meaningful use requirements until 11 or midnight, and then begins the entire cycle again at 7 a.m. the next morning. That's data I saw yesterday. It's not fantasy. It's, of course, what all the clinicians are experiencing. We have created a monster, and that is not sustainable, which is why 40% of doctors in America want to quit. Good news. CMS recognizes this. 
there is a complete understanding that the pendulum swung too far, and we now need to really thoughtfully ask, what do the next steps look like? We might, because Lawrence and I work in similar ecosystems of innovation, see the next generation of tools look a bit more like Facebook than today's EHR, much more about collaboration of teams much more about ensuring each person on the team practices to the top of their license. And that means that, you know, less just rote data entry for the primary care clinician, for those who are trained to spend time with patients and do procedures, the burden will be spread over a much wider team of people. I'm starting to see these products and services, starting to see the EHRs being revised, and a lot of that has to do with regulatory change that allows those evolutions to occur. The third thing I'd say is, remember, I mean, for better or for worse, we're in the biplane era of electronic health records, and the jet engine hasn't been invented yet. Commercial airline travel was not so good in the 1920s. <laughs> Today, look at our error rates. Pretty low. And yeah, fine, the TSA is a hassle, but nonetheless, you have a, I'm guessing, reasonable travel experience pretty much being assured your plane will land safely. The EHR industry is going through that adolescent period where the biplane is flying but crashes occasionally and the technology is pretty rotten. But there's a trajectory, and I see it. I mean, it isn't 20 years away, five years away, of getting us to the jet engine era. So it's coming. The government is listening. But in the meantime, I completely agree you're suffering. Okay. Well, a lot of people, at least a bunch of people on the chat, were glad <laughs> that you heard their pain. And somebody said you forgot to talk about all the work done on the weekends, dealing with voice transcriptions and other things. So just uh, just adding on there. All right. Um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go to the chat. Uh, and John's going to remind you how to make the most of that so you can participate uh, after sharing a little bit of uh, information. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, so yeah, obviously a lot of pressures for electronic health records. Yeah, a lot of pressure for electronic health records, but also a lot of pressure uh, financially uh, for uh, healthcare and teams in healthcare. Uh, clinical leaders who provide high quality care on a daily basis still need to be able to demonstrate the value of that service. Um, what happens when you can't demonstrate the value you're creating for your hospital? So IHI is proud to offer applying value management to healthcare uh, to help your frontline clinical leaders learn the financial tools to articulate the value they're creating for patients. Perfect for operational leaders, QI managers, and financial staff, this in-person seminar will help your team design tests to resource more effectively, teach them specific tools to give insight into quality and value, and create a better understanding of the financial information that can better inform frontline decision-making. Applying value management to healthcare will be held November 2nd to November 4th in Washington, D.C. You can visit IHI.org to learn more about our new seminar and see Don Berwick, founder of IHI, talk about the importance of value management on the front lines. I'll share a link in the chat, but for more information, feel free to reach out to us at info at IHI.org. All right. And and to be, uh, John just has a few words about chat. Go oh, ahead. And if you're going to chat yeah. in a question or comment, make sure it is to send to in the uh, in the chat bar at the bottom. All right. Thank you so much, John. All right, folks. Uh, really want to uh, get your questions and comments in here. Uh, always wonderful when we uh, can acknowledge our listeners from Canada. 
And this person says, I am from Canada, and there is a privacy, and there is privacy and security and uh, that we must comply with. And uh, how are those hurdles being addressed? Um, I guess I'll start with you, John, on that one. Sure. I'm actually in Canada quite a lot and trying to help UHN Toronto and Ontario figure out some of their healthcare IT strategies. Um, so I love the Canadians. 30 million people, and they have much more homogeneity in some of their policy making than we do in the United States, where we have 50 states and six territories, which means we have 56 different privacy and security policies. So although we have HIPAA, and that sets a floor, every state, every locality seems to have its own community standards and its own variations. So ultimately what all of us try to do is respect the requirements of the patient. Massachusetts traditionally has been an opt-in state. We don't share data about you until we have consent to share data about you. We uh, try to segregate our data, and that is some data, like your flu vaccine, maybe not so controversial, whereas HIV status may be very controversial. So state laws often take into account special consent and transmission requirements for mental health, substance abuse, HIV, domestic violence, sexually transmitted disease. It is a challenge to balance the need for information for care coordination with the complete protection of privacy. And so we use a combination of policy and technology approaches. Again, consent where appropriate, making sure there's a, a need to know, a minimal amount of data is shared just for the particular purpose, and technologies such as encryption and audit trails and malware prevention to try to keep it secure. Lastly, I'll say the Office of Civil Rights has been particularly effective in enforcing our security and privacy rule by publicly hanging violators of our privacy policies and publishing the wall of shame to indicate who has breached patient privacy. So there's nothing like public embarrassment to incent us to perform better. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I can see this is a crowd really looking. Hopefully you all have some solutions uh, for, for them. Um, definitely a couple of questions related to nurses, uh, better integration of the, the kind of charting that nurses do with what uh, doctors do, and also uh, an app uh, for nurses uh, that might also kind of cut down on some of uh, the tedium there. Um, feel free to say you don't know uh, <laughs> if it's not out there. I don't know, Lawrence, are you seeing anything like that kind of bubble around here in Massachusetts, you know? Uh, from you know, I, I'd have to defer, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> you know, there are, there are some really interesting uh, products that we're seeing that uh, that do improve documentation, do make it easier to do documentation. Uh, you know, one, one example is... Uh, and, and maybe this is for real-time sharing of information, maybe not just directly for nurses, but we're starting to see some really interesting uh, integration of uh, ancillary care providers like ambulances and ambulance drivers. And with the mobile revolution, we are really getting a, a capacity for, uh, you know, for as a ambulance is driving to a uh, to a pickup. Uh, they've been called out to a pickup. We've got a project that's going on in central Massachusetts where, uh, in real time, the ambulance is saying, hey, you know, we're going to pick up Lawrence. Uh, it's sending a message over the health information exchange to uh, to the medical group that's uh, the major medical group that's in the area. They're looking it up and saying, hey, yeah, Lawrence has consented to sharing of information. Uh, and, you know, here's where he was last 
taken to the hospital. Here's uh, what his uh, end-of-life wishes may be, and they're getting that in real time to the ambulance as they're arriving at the uh, as they're arriving at the patient's. Uh, patient's bedside or patient's home. And those, because this, you know, you could never do that without the data in the electronic health record, without the ability of the doc to uh, record the patient's wishes. Uh, you know, the all of that is being brought together right now in real time, and it's really going to transform the way that we get care. So it's really an exciting time. doesn't directly answer your nurse question, but it's an example of, you know, better sharing of information across, uh, you know, across the spectrum of care. Okay. Thank you very much. John, are apps sort of the, the, the next kind of design iteration? I mean, is, is that going to figure in to some of these solutions from what you can tell so far? Sure. So let me give you a few statistics. Um, Beth Israel Deaconess provides a whole variety of publicly facing websites and applications today. 80% of the access of Beth Israel Deaconess public technology is via mobile technology. And so that means iPads and iPhones and people using Android devices. The desktop and the laptop are just no longer the way people are seeking connections to their clinicians. So there absolutely is an imperative for creating more apps. And let's take a look at what consumer companies like Apple are doing. In iOS 10, you have CareKit. CareKit does four things. It enables a clinician to send a care plan and care summary to your phone. It enables a gathering of objective data from devices in your home with your consent, your bathroom scale, blood pressure, cuff, glucometer. It enables clinicians and patients to interact with well we'll call questionnaires. How are you feeling? What's your mood? Is your wound healing? It shows a dashboard of what your progress is, subjective and objective, and provides prevent doctor-patient uh, communication in a secure text environment. So if Apple is putting on 800 million phones the capacity to do this kind of electronic telemedicine and remote health care, you can imagine society is going to now, as consumers, say, hospital, doctor, this is the way we want to receive our care. It's going to be the clinicians and hospitals that offer this kind of e-enablement that will see the success in the future. So happening, happening quickly. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to go to Lawrence in a minute, but I'm told that, Jill, there you saw a question you wanted to address. I actually had a question that I was uh, that I Oh, you want to ask. Go right, go right ahead. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, so I, actually, uh, within the Alliance community, and I'm going to imagine probably reflected in people that are listening today, I hear the leaders often say, I'm bombarded by startups and innovative groups that, that tell me I can help fix some of your problems. I can do this for you or I can do that for you. And, and these healthcare delivery system leaders are saying, how do, I, how do I vet these? I want to take a chance. I think there is opportunity in innovation. I actually want to start to perhaps look elsewhere to try and solve some of my problems. Do, we, do either of you have some advice that we could give to providers or leaders that are making decisions about the things that they purchase or the, or the enhancements that they might add to their system 
from innovation on how to kind of vet that or make sense of some of that. So Lawrence uh, had motioned to me that he maybe had some thoughts. So why don't you start on that one? Thanks, Jill. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Um, this is actually one of the things that we hear all the time from uh, from hospital leaders or, or for less resourced organizations like the home care uh, alliances here in Massachusetts, where they uh, they know there's tons of innovation out there and they have no way to differentiate uh, those innovations. There are plenty of there are experts who may be good at this, but there's no you know really efficient way of uh, validating this. So this is actually a key component of the marketplace that we're putting together here in Massachusetts is to try to have a better understanding both for to help accelerate startups. We want to give startups the tools, the checklists that uh, help them understand better how to, uh, you know, all the features that they have to build in, all the enterprise uh, infrastructure. If the, you want to sell to a hospital, you have to be able to deal with institutional review boards. You have to be able to uh, deal with the enterprise uh, information security requirements. You have to deal with the privacy requirements of healthcare in certain areas you may you have to know about and be ready, willing, and able to deal with the regulatory requirements. Um, all of these need to be better exposed to startups. That's part of what we're putting together as part of the marketplace in order to uh, in order to make it easier for startups to understand, as well as to reduce the burden on uh, the, you know, the healthcare leadership. Where uh, John, I've heard quote uh, that he gets a dozen calls a day from uh, startups saying, "Hey, can you help me out?" And what many startups don't recognize, or maybe they do recognize but don't uh, don't worry about, is what they're basically asking for is free consulting from uh, those healthcare leaders. And we need a better way. Uh, we're trying to do that here in Massachusetts. And I wonder if, John, you've got any other tips on sort of how you deal with, uh, you know, this problem. Sure. And so, Jill uh, and Madge, I will forward to you the rubric we use to evaluate all oh. of these startups, and you can feel free to circulate it. So it's a six-page document. You'll see it's very simple. It's basically making sure that whatever the app is, that it will protect security and integrity, that it's going to be fit for purpose, that it doesn't run into FDA regulatory issues like making uh, you know specific diagnostic decisions on your behalf or ordering therapies. I mean, you would agree that an app that looked at a picture of you and said, oh, you're pale, you must have stomach cancer, would be very bad. <laughs> So I will send that to you. Feel free to search. Okay, that. very, very good. So if it isn't a link right now, we'll uh, we'll figure out some way. And again, that's just an encouragement to check out the resource page uh, starting tomorrow morning, and you'll be able for this program today, and you'll be able to get hold of that. Um, some concerns about the small independent practices. Somebody says, are we creating another monster with macro MIPS that disadvantage small independent practices with fewer resources that harm primary care doctors, worsen patient care, and doctor shortages? So what can be done to protect the small, uh, smaller practices? Uh, and there's a fair amount of concern about the disruption of the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, John, I guess we'll fling that at you, too. <laughs> okay. Well, boy, you know, I am the world's eternal optimist. Okay. But yesterday I did a, a presentation to 200 docs at the Mass Medical Society on issues of regulatory compliance, cybersecurity, the imperative for quality, the need for metrics and feedback, the need to adopt new technologies to build team-based care. 
accountable care organizations, value-based purchasing, and let's, are there any acronyms I've forgotten? <laughs> and the conclusion with the 200 doctors in the room, we love small practices. And there is a great tradition in medicine of having an entrepreneurial spirit. And it isn't macro, it isn't MIPS, it's everything combined that makes the likelihood of small practice survival of the next 10 years very unlikely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, uh, example, I spend $5 million a year just on cybersecurity. How is a small practice keeping data safe when the server is under a potted plant next to the pizza boxes? It's just too hard. And so whether it's affiliation agreements with ACOs, whether it's joining larger networks or or groups, I wish we could support the small independent practice and make them thrive. I just worry the collective responsibilities require us to work in larger groups than we have in the past. Yeah, and I, I would yeah. I would just add on to that. You know, this this problem gets even worse outside of uh, traditional medical practices. Um, we do a lot of work these days with uh, behavioral health organizations, community behavioral health organizations, with long term post acute organizations. You know, if you go into a skilled nursing facility, oftentimes your EHR implementation manager is the second floor head uh, nurse, and she has been asked. Uh, to oversee, uh, you know, the implementation of an electronic health record that, uh, you know, this is a total game changer for her. She has to totally, you know, uh, learn a whole new language, whole new vocabulary, and there are capital requirements in terms of servers, in terms of uh, infrastructure, in terms of Internet access that organizations never really had to deal with in the past. So um, I, I do think that, at a, at a certain relatively, you know, relatively small scale, but not independent, uh, you know, you can get to being able to support these tools, but it really is, uh, all of this is driving uh, the really small uh, independents uh, to combine or to work with larger systems so that they can get access. I mean, as John mentioned, the cybersecurity threats alone are a reason to, uh, to combine with, uh, you know, with larger organizations who have the resources to combat this. This is complicated stuff. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it is, uh, it is the reality. Thank you, Lawrence. Uh, there's a question for you, at least two people wondering if there's a link uh, to learn more about the initiative you were talking about in central Massachusetts, uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, that project is actually one of our community implementation grants. So if you go to uh, mehi.mastech.org, um, which is probably related someplace on the slides, uh, and go to the Connected Communities uh, grants. You can see a little bit more about uh, that project. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, how about using technology to create virtual networks that support small independent practices is a good thing for patient care? Um, networking more, um, aggregating, I guess, uh, together. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, there are there's a growing number of cloud and uh, mobile technologies that do make it more uh, more affordable 
easier to for independent practices to leverage this electronic technology without needing to bring in-house the all of the expertise. So I, th- I think in certain cases there are uh, there are vendors that organizations can uh, can work with that don't require anything uh, for the doc other than you know. Uh, an internet connection and a computer, which almost all of them have uh, today. So there are definitely tools out there, but it is it is really getting complicated uh, for folks. All right, thank you. A question. This one keeps moving away from me. Uh, somebody was asking about uh, whether we're going. Do you think we will continue to see EHRs that are all encompassing of every workflow, or will we move to more narrow and specialized solutions? I'm struck by how long it takes to get even minor updates to a field or report in a large EHR. John, any thoughts on that question? Okay, so I may have controversial views on this topic, so we'll have Lawrence as a check and balance. Okay. I believe that the EHRs are a dumb transactional system for the capture of data, and that because of their regulatory constraints, probably are not going to be the centerpiece of innovation. What will happen is there will be, as was described by the question, niche products, specialty products that interact with the EHR but provide the clinician or the patient and their families with a much richer experience than the EHR itself. And so as an exemplar, I mean, Beth Israel Deaconess is a little bit odd. We build our own EHR, which is probably the last in America to do so. But we work with a huge variety of these third-party companies that are providing these solutions that are much friendlier uh, than the EHR in general, but they're very niche-oriented. Uh, yet they do deposit the data that is generated during the process of using that, what I'll call app or module, back into the EHR. So think of the EHR as just a big collector of data, a aggregator of information that may actually come from a huge variety of smaller, tailored niche applications and devices like the things you wear. Yeah, so I, I think, as always, you're probably thinking further in the future than, <laughs> than I often am. I, you know, I'm seeing, I think if some of the projects that are getting off the ground around uh, really uh, driving data level and local interoperability, things like the FIRE project and the Argonaut project that you flashed up on the, on the screen, um, I think there's a potential there to allow for really tight integration and, no, and nimble apps that, that transform the patient experience. I do think, however, that the EHR vendors are in a good place if they're interested, and I guess I would challenge them to be interested, and I would challenge our overall regulatory structure to ask for outcomes rather than specific you know, fields to be checked. If that happens where we go to incentive for, say, innovative ways to predictively understand uh, which patients are most likely to be readmitted and let uh, the EHR vendors uh, build that infrastructure. I do think that the EHRs themselves will, and the vendors who are supporting those EHRs, I do think that they are likely to come out with solutions that don't look anything like today's uh, EHR. Maybe... um, you know, it'll depend on the particular vendors. I'm sure several of them will, over time, go away. We've already seen a, a massive uh, 
consolidation of the market. Uh, five years ago, there were about 20 vendors in Massachusetts that you know totaled 85% of the market. I just looked at the meaningful use numbers, and it's about five vendors right now in Massachusetts that uh, that have 80% of the market. So there's been a massive collapse. Uh, you know, so they have the infrastructure. I would really encourage them to do the innovation as well. Okay, thank you. All right, lots of really good questions. I saw one related to psychiatric issues and uh, some of the culture changes needed around uh, an open notes kind of thing where patients can see uh, doctor's notes. Uh, we actually uh, have uh, looked at open notes, that whole initiative, a couple of times on WIHI. I don't know if we're going to be able to get into all of that right now. Um, I, I think what I might do is pivot to Jill uh, Duncan for a moment and ask, um, where would you say the members of the Leadership Alliance, particularly those who worked on this call to action, uh, what are some of their concerns or ambitions, would you say, regarding kind of in- interactions with patients? Um, and is there a hope in some ways that patients will really also be seen as users in need of better solutions as the innovations come about? And maybe that's, you know, a perhaps perhaps a question for Lawrence and or John, but maybe that first one, Jill. Um, to sure. what extent are f- people kind of thinking about the engagement with patients and families? Yeah, great. And uh, Lawrence, to maybe even follow up on, on where he concluded, was the, the call to vendors and, and call to policymakers to really think differently about the incentives was at the heart of the conversation that I mentioned at the beginning when vendors and policymakers came together in D.C. It was... The purpose of having ONC and, and CMS there together with some of the key vendors was, was really the ask and the plea from the alliance, I think, perhaps on, the, on, on behalf of the larger community that has been echoing similar voices, to really push to change those incentives and, and, and open up the opportunity for vendors to start to think and, and create and pu- push differently. When I think about the call to action that the alliance members convened, uh, at the heart of it, and, and I think at um, the very first point that they tried to make was really putting the patient at the center of the process and thinking differently about um, to the I think one the question I saw in the chat around the culture component and and certainly in the context of this conversation how we build and leverage technology. John had some great examples just from his own family, but but pushing vendors and 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 again pushing around regulations. Uh, that that perhaps feel limiting at this point to vendors and, and to providers as well, but really thinking about the position of the patient in the discussion in the in the user in the user experience as well as accessibility and and that has been a, a huge component of the way that they've talked and, and the alliance has also really pushed around continuing the, the dialogue in multidisciplinary multi-stakeholder formats. To really bring in the voice, these, the voices that we see today in the chat, the voices that we hear represented in the examples that both uh, John and Lawrence have shared today, but to, to continue to think about the possibilities and the solutions, and um, as Lawrence suggested, as the, the gap narrows in the providers and in the and then in the large vendors that are working in creating the framework for the space, how can people really leverage that moving forward? I think that's been the heart of the way the alliance has been thinking. Certainly things like interoperability and the connections for patients across systems and the different systems that they touch is at the heart of what so many have been saying for so long, and and this group 
certainly echoed that as well, but really expanding that to pushing and thinking about how we can leverage this type of technology to pull in both health and healthcare data, um, the ambulance example, but other examples about people's health that influences the way they interact with the healthcare system continues to also frame this group's thinking. Great. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, John, I'm going to give you uh, uh, this question, and then we're just going to go around the horn. Somebody put it in there twice, so I'm, I'm going to take that as a signal. Please answer this question. One big problem is that we've become slaves to billing and coding and quality metrics uh, requirements and hence have become less useful for communicating good medical information. That is the EHR or the EMR, the Electronic Medical Record. Any signs that somehow we're going to pull some of these things apart or kind of protect them a little bit from one another uh, uh, or one won't necessarily dictate the other? John? Sure. So I'll give you two optimistic statements. So the first is that as you look at the next tranche of federal regulations, there actually is a lot more flexibility on what it is you measure. It's really practice-specific. So that it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I have glaucoma. Don't worry, no HIPAA issues there. For my ophthalmologist to be ranked based on my smoking status and my blood pressure control when, in fact, my problem is glaucoma. Of course, it makes no sense. So you'll be able to tailor the quality metrics much more to your practice and your domain. So that's good news one. Good news two, the technologies that are uh, coming out now are embracing things like natural language processing that is capable of reading the notes you write and then discerning certain quality metrics or certain compliance and regulatory satisfaction from just the reading of the note you wrote. So, yes, it is my belief that computers, which today are now a burden, will in the very near future actually be an asset, a tool that reduces the amount of time you spend clicking. The computer will do measurements on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, John Halamka, Dr. Halamka, I'm going to sort of treat that as your sort of wrapping up remarks. Is there anything else you'd want to part with uh, before I turn to Lawrence and Jill? Just remember, this is a journey, and we aren't at the destination. So be a little tolerance of the bumps in the road, and I can assure you I've done this for 20 years. Our trajectory has been good. Okay. Thank you so much, John, for participating today. Uh, Lawrence, uh, kind of some thoughts. Lots of uh, intrigue, I think, with what's going on here in Massachusetts. Um, go ahead. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I was I was amazed at the number at the accelerator event I mentioned at Pulse last week, um, at the number of what I would call non-traditional healthcare companies who were super excited about the potential for digital health. So some of the folks who came up and uh, talked and pitched were like Bose, you know, the the earphone, you know, I think of them as the headphone. I'm probably wearing Bose earphones now. Um, probably not. <laughs> Fortunately, who knows? Um, Bose, analog devices who make like chips. Uh, these types of organizations are really excited and see healthcare as a major growth opportunity for them because of the convergence of the data that have been captured as well as uh, the growth of mobile technology and the growth of sensors. And what they're really interested in is can we 
leverage this combination to have a real impact on people's health, on making sure that we're proactively uh, understanding what's about to happen with their health so that we can get them into the doctor. If, for instance, your temperature starts to go haywire uh, after, you know, and that has some sort of indication for a future uh, crisis coming, those uh it's just a tremendously exciting time. Over the next 10 years, we're going to see changes in uh, in healthcare that are going to make, uh, you know, the last five or 50 years uh, seem small, and I'm really excited about it. All right. I'm sorry, folks. We just can't get away from this optimism on, on this program. Uh, Jill, you want to pile on, and uh, then we'll say goodbye to everyone. Thanks, Jill. Sure. Thanks so much. I'll just add that um, I think to vendors or innovators that may be listening alongside providers today, I think the offer and, and the ask to continue to engage patients and providers and, and to work collaboratively and, and, and in this multi-stakeholder way whenever possible has had such value um, in the innovations that have happened to date. And the last, I think, is a lesson that's been learned by the Alliance and perhaps maybe where we even started today, and that is there's so much value in at least understanding the history of how we got where we are as we to as we think about and craft the opportunities for the future. So um, lessons learned that, that this group has had over the past six months that I'd lo- love to encourage others to take into their work as they frame their collective voice and their asks with vendors and innovators as well. All right. Thank you so much, Jill, John, Lawrence. Thank you, wonderful audience. We are at the top of the hour. You've been a great group. You've asked a lot of questions. We tried to get to as many as possible. I'm sorry if there were any lingering ones. I do hope people have ways to continue this conversation and that you have people within your own organizations where you can take some of your own ideas to, people like John and, uh, you know, others who are working in this space and so committed uh, to uh, the improvements. Uh, next up on WHI on October 6th, we're going to be talking about improving the patient experience, what's working and what's not. I guess we could say electronic health records are kind of somewhere in that mix. I hope you'll tune in the information on our website uh, as we conclude today's show. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use from our discussion today. When you log off, you can also find all that stuff on our website. As John said, thanks for filling out that brief survey. It really, We really read it. We comb through it. We try to see what we did well and what we can do better. Uh, and again, uh, if you uh, like what you hear, tell others about it. And again, you can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Search under the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Any questions whatsoever, if I talk too fast, uh, email info at IHI.org. There are a great group of people who help make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. I want to thank also Jess Russo for help on Twitter today. As I always say, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.